Thanks, you guys. Gosh, don't you all want to say amen? Amen. That was beautiful, and your testimonies are beautiful, and bless us. You're all the visual aids for the talk on suffering today. All of you that shared your suffering and God's faithfulness, thank you for doing that. I'm Lynn Kitchens. I'm so glad to be here with you. And I have to say, I'm sorry for the rest of the country, but praise God for our sunshine. That's why I like to live in Texas. I am glad to be here, but I'm not going to be very popular today because I'm going to talk about suffering. We live in a world that tells us we deserve happiness and health and wealth. And unfortunately, even Christians have jumped on this bandwagon. But you can see by my title that seems to me that God's chosen path for us is often a path that involves our suffering. His path is through the great waters of trouble and trials and hardship. His way is through the sea of suffering. I got that out of verse 19, the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, his path is through it. God usually doesn't take us out of suffering as much as he takes us through the suffering. And if he loves us, why would he do that? When our son Tyler was just about three years old, he was in our backyard playing with a neighbor girl, and they were playing tag, and they ran behind the garage where Ted had stacked up some boards, and one board was sticking out, and Tyler just ran right smack dab into it on his head. And I realized real quickly he was going to need some stitches. And so he's bleeding, and I take him to emergency center, and they grab him up, and they run in a room with him, and they stand me in the room, and Tyler's lying out on this uh, table, and they begin to stitch him up. And it was one of the hardest things I've done because he began to yell out as if he was a grown man, Mama! Mama! Mama, save me! Help me! Help me! And I'm just standing there, and the doctors just keep on working, and he is so confused. And he keeps yelling, stop, where are you, mama? And I was his mom. But I was just standing in the room. Why would I do that? Why would I let him suffer? Because I knew once the suffering ended, he was going to be better than when it started. That's what God knows about us as well. There are blessings that come to us when we go through our trials with God. The Bible tells us our troubles and trials spiritually mature and complete us. Look at James 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. Lacking in nothing. And we want to say, but God wants me to have an abundant life. The Bible says that too. He wants me to have blessing and peace and joy. And I would say, absolutely. And guess how that usually comes? Through trials and tribulations and sufferings. Roman 8, 28 tells us God works all things for good. For those that love him and are called according to his purpose. So his ways are through the mighty waters. It was Jesus 
who took his disciples and sent them out into the rough waters of the Sea of Galilee when he knew that in the darkness a storm would come and the waves would be huge. And for hours, the disciples struggled with the oars, fearing for their lives at 2 and 3 a.m. in the night, fighting those giant waves while Jesus sat on a hill watching them, praying for them. And when the time was perfect, he walked out on the water to them and delivered them out of the trial and the waters. We can see that God uses suffering as far back as the book of Genesis. In Genesis 3, when sin came into the world because Adam and Eve chose to disobey God, suffering was part of their future. Eve, she was going to face great pain in childbirth. Adam was going to face great pain trying to get a pea pod to grow out of a cursed ground. God says, you will um, eat bread by the sweat of your face. And then at that same time, God announced that he himself would suffer, that he would use suffering as a means to redeem us, his children. The sufferings of his son would be our salvation. Look at Genesis 3. The Lord said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. In other words, Christ will defeat Satan. But Satan shall bruise Christ's heel. A picture of the cross and the suffering of Jesus Christ. God's people, Israel, in the Old Testament, did they face many trials? Did they go through turmoils? Did the prophets go through turmoil? In the New Testament, after Jesus suffered and was resurrected victorious, his bride was born, the church. Did the church suffer? All throughout its birth, all throughout its growth, there was great joy, but there was also great suffering. This didn't surprise the early church like it surprises us today. 2 Timothy 2, look what Paul told young Timothy. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. And I love this. Paul saw suffering as a way for him to draw closer to Christ, to share in his sufferings. Look at Philippians. Paul says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. We don't go to a cross and suffer in that sense like Jesus did. But every time we experience rejection, loneliness, heartache, exhaustion, these are things Christ endured by coming in the flesh for us. And so we get to share in his sufferings when we are experiencing those things. We get to know Christ more in that way. So we have to realize the issue isn't so much will we suffer, the issue is, what do we do when we suffer? Because we have lots of choices. We can blame. We can get defeated. We can become fearful. We can get mad and bitter. God's hope is that we follow his lead 
when we find ourselves on a troubled path. Just like the nation of Israel chased God on his path through the Red Sea, God wants us to chase him through those hard, suffering trials in our life with hope running at our side as we chase God. And this leads us to Asaph in chapter 77. From Asaph, we learn the do's and the don'ts of suffering. And I think we've all been all the places Asaph is in this psalm. It's night. We meet Asaph in the night, which is fitting. It's the midnight of his despair. This is where we all find ourselves when our woes and our worries are overcoming us. It feels like we're walking in the daytime, even feels like night. It's interesting, though, to find Asaph here because he's a singer of God's praises, chosen by David as a Levite to lead Israel by singing the praises of God before the Ark of the Covenant, where the Ten, ta- the, uh, ten Commandments were on the tablets of stone. And this psalm is supposed to be sung in a style of another worship leader named Jejethun or Ethan. And this is... Uh, what he is given him that responsibility to do. But when you read this, instead of singing God's praises, you realize Asaph at the beginning is stuck in the darkness of his own fears and his own confusions, his own frustrations, and we realize this is the psalm of a troubled believer. Why he's troubled, we can't know for certainty. I read more things on why Asaph was troubled that he didn't even know about, I don't think. So uh, (laughs) we don't know. Here's what it does look like, that his troubles have to deal with his love for the nation Israel and his concerns for what's going on in Israel. And that's why he talks about the Red Sea at the end, something God did for Israel. Maybe they just got defeated in a battle. Maybe God has been silent. Maybe... They don't feel God's blessings and direction. Maybe there's enemies surrounding them. Whatever it is, Asaph seems to be questioning the faithfulness of God. And we all can see in this psalm, he's not without faith, but his faith is perplexed, which is what often happens to us. And here's the thoughts he's going on in his mind. Has God cast off Israel? Are we out of the picture? Has he given up on us? Have the very attributes of God, which were our refuge, are they still true? Even if Asaph's lament is a national lament, it is still a very real and personal pain in the heart of Asaph. He is suffering internally as Israel is suffering externally. So let's see what he's doing. Look at verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. You hold my eyelids open. I'm so troubled, I can't speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? 
Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Oh, that sounds kind of familiar. Okay, I want us all to go sneak up on Asaph's house and peek through his window. I want us to look at him lying on his pallet. I want you to see him rolling, tossing, turning back and forth. His lips are moving, but not much is coming out of them. His arm is raised to God, and he says he just keeps it there for most of the night. It does not grow weary, but he is not a happy person. In verse 4, he's unable to sleep, and he says it is God that keeps him awake. You hold my eyelids open. It seems as if Asaph is sort of pointing a finger at God, a little bit blaming God for his misery, but the truth of the matter is Asaph in the darkness is not seeing God very well. In the darkness of his room and in the darkness of his heart, his vision is cloudy. His view of God has become blurry. And when he thinks about God, instead of making his heart rejoice, he begins to moan his spirit faints because what he thought he knew to be true about God doesn't seem to be true anymore. And that is sure a great temptation for us when we find ourselves in a dark, confusing place. It's easy to want to blame God for our misery. In the depths of our despair, we forget who God really is. We don't see him. And in our mind, he becomes only a shadow of who he really is. So to step out of the darkness, we have to realize God is sovereign over our suffering, but he's not responsible for how we respond to it. It is not because of God, Asaph feels hopeless. Asaph feels hopeless because he's doubting who God is. And he's doubting where God is. This is the suffering of Asaph. This is often our suffering. When we are on a difficult path, we doubt God's character and faithfulness. And that's at the heart of our despair. We see Asaph trying to pray. But since he's unsure now of who God is, his prayers have nowhere to go. So he is speechless. I read about a couple of boys and one boy that was speechless about God. He was eight. His brother was ten. They were the hoodlums of the community. They ran around causing trouble everywhere they went. The mom was beside herself, and so she said, Hey, I heard there's a pastor who does some discipline of children. I'm going to take my eight-year-old and my ten-year-old there. So the ten-year-old waits in the hall. The pastor calls in the eight-year-old, and he starts his discipline process by saying to the eight-year-old, Where is God? The eight-year-old just stares at him. So he says again a little sterner, where is God? The eight-year-old keeps staring at him, and he finally goes, where is God? And the eight-year-old can't stand anymore. He jumps up, runs out of the room, runs through the hall. His brother watches him, runs into a closet. The brother runs in the closet after him and says, what's going on? And he said, man, we're in trouble this time. God is missing, and they think we did it. I just wanted to lighten things up a little bit. (laughs) Okay, let's go back to the window. 
We're peeking at Asaph. He stops tossing and turning because for a moment he thinks, I'll remember my songs as a worship leader. It says he sang them in the night. Maybe he performed his duties even into the dark. Maybe some of the people in Jerusalem could hear his melody, his songs, his praise words kind of floating over the city at night. So he tries to think about those, but they don't give him any relief. Because he doesn't have any real praise in his heart at that moment for God. So trying to sing doesn't work. He's still speechless. His deepest thoughts about God that he tells us show us what a disturbed faith he had at this time. He asks questions that you and I ask God when we find ourselves in a hard place. These are questions we ask when God is not behaving like we want him to behave. Has God rejected me forever? Has he stopped loving me? Are his promises really true? Is he really a merciful and gracious God? Is his anger greater than his compassion? And when these questions start controlling our hearts, leading us into darkness, when we find our faith compromised, our spiritual life becoming paralyzed, to step out of the darkness, we have to realize we should never doubt in the darkness what God has taught us in the light. We have to choose that even when we don't feel the things we know to be true about God, we believe it anyway. Because we admit we're human, we're sinners, there will be times our songs are brave and loud and everybody hears them and we're singing our faith songs all day long and then there will be times when so many things are coming our way that we feel like our songs are just bouncing against a wall like Asaph did. We can be tossed emotionally just like Asaph tossed around on his bed. So if that's true, and it is about our life, we have to decide in the darkness of our confusion I'm going to believe what I know to be true in the light, even though I don't feel it, even though I don't understand, even though God seems very far away. I'm going to choose to believe it, and I'm going to lay aside my false notions of God that were born out of my pain. That's where our false notions come from, and I'm going to embrace who God really is, the God explain in his word and that is the moment of dawning that's when we get to step out of the darkness we choose to believe that even when my faith is weak god will be faithful to me philippians 1 6 i am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of christ jesus if we look through the window again, we see Asaph begins to get out of bed, walking towards the window, looking into the dawn. And here's what we need to realize. These first ten voice verses up to this point, Asaph has really only been talking about God. From here on out, he starts talking to God. This is the dawning. Let's look at verse 10. 
Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I'll remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Do you see how he goes from I, I, and he talks about God, and then he starts talking to God in those verses. When I was uh, young, my dad used to work all night sometimes. He, he would get a night shift. And so my mom would send my sister or me to go in and wake him up late in the afternoon. And so one day I was given that duty and I was in the bedroom with my dad and I could not wake him up. So I didn't know what to do. But then I remembered a Three Stooges show I had seen. <laughs> now this is dangerous. And I remember when the Three Stooges couldn't wake someone up, they would get a bucket of cold water and throw it on their face. And I'm still thanking God today, I could not find a bucket. Yay! So I did the next best thing. I took a washcloth. I dunked it in ice cold water till it was dripping wet. I ran and stood next to my dad and threw it over his face <laughs> while he was sound asleep. I guess I wasn't very smart as a little girl. My dad, without even opening his eyes or moving anything but his arm, immediately threw it right into my face. <laughs> that fast. And then I took off running into the other room and I thought, my job is done. My dad is awake. <laughs> this is the point in the story where it's like God drops down a wet washcloth and it hits Asaph in his face. And he woke up from his complaining, and he made a conscious decision, I will, I will, I will, and I won't sit here in my spiritual darkness anymore. In verse 10, it says, I will appeal to this to the years of the right hand of the Most High. And this was interesting to me. It has two very different interpretations. One is he's talking about, I'm going to think on the power and greatness of God. The other one is it would be translated this way. This is my grief that the right hand of the Most High has changed. Now, either of those interpretations come uh, to the same result in Asaph because if it is the second interpretation, this is my grief, God has changed, Asaph is finally realizing this is my grief that I think God has changed, which gives him a place to move out of. And he determines to do that. He's going to remedy this by talking to God, by remembering, pondering, meditating on who he really is and his faithfulness to Israel, his incredible deeds, his wonders, his amazing works. Meditating on God's past greatness is a light of hope into the midnight of our despair. And I just want to say this. This can't just be a passing moment of thanks. Hey, thanks, God. Yeah, that was nice that that happened last week. This is about choosing the discipline of intentionally reviewing our spiritual history with God. It takes time. It's focusing, meditating with God. And he is the hero as we do this meditation. He has to be the hero. If we look back throughout our life and realize, in my mind, God is sort of a villain. 
then you've created a false god. You have to go back to the word and see who he really is. Reviewing our spiritual history, it's a time about God. It's a time about his faithfulness. It's not a time about us. Isn't that healthy when we quit thinking about us? <laughs> when we get to think about who God is, it makes us healthier. We are honoring him in our past. I thought this was interesting. The first ten verses of this psalm I mentioned, Asaph uses these pronouns, I, me, and my, 20 times. He refers and gives reference to God three times. From verse 10 on, you only hear three times him talk about himself, ten times talk about his mighty, mighty God. The light of day is getting stronger for Asaph. You know, it's really fun when we ask women to come speak at our summer salad luncheons and give their testimony. They do a couple of things. A lot of them, first, they kind of throw up, and then they say yes. But they always come back to us afterwards and say, thank you for having me sit before God and review my spiritual history with him. I didn't even remember. It is amazing what God will bring into your mind that you didn't even remember. And he will be faithful to do that. Remembering God's mercies in our lives is the best medicine for a waning faith. Okay, so we find Asaph heading into the day. Let's look at verse 13. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the people. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Asaph moved out of the shadows of his doubt into the sunshine of confidence in God. He could have chosen to remember many faithful episodes of God with Israel. He chose to tell about God delivering Israel from Egyptian bondage as they stood on the shore of the Red Sea. Now, I thought about this. Remember, Asaph was nowhere even near being born yet when that incredible miracle happened. So what does that tell us? That the people of Israel had told that story. They had told the story of God's faithfulness. They told all the stories of God's might and mercies to Israel over the years. And because of that, anchored strongly in the heart of Asap were these important truths about God. We see what he knows to be true about God in verses 13 through 15, that only God is God. Only our God is holy. Only our God is great and works wonders and redeems us. Asaph had heard those stories from the time he was a little boy and they were anchored in his heart. And that should tell us something. God's children must tell God's stories to stay in the light. We can't afford to be quiet. We will forget God's stories. Our children won't know 
These truths won't be anchored in their hearts. And their children won't know. And the truths won't be anchored. And our Bibles will get dusty and silent. And guess what? While we're quiet about God, the world is really loud. We can't be quiet about God. Our hope is when you and I are gone from this world, those that follow us should look at the gods of this world. Money. Sex, materialism, technology, and in the middle of that, they should repeat what they heard from us. What God is great like our God. When I was uh, young, I didn't have parents who told me God's stories. They were wonderful parents, but they didn't know God, and no one told them God's stories. But uh, one of my remembrance of God's mercies when I review my spiritual history is that my neighbor would pick my sister and I up. I was between first and third grade and take us to his church. And it's sort of funny because I went to some class and I don't ever remember anything they said in there. And then I would go to church and just sit by myself, a little first, second, third grader. And I didn't understand a thing that that man at the front of the church was saying. But then they would sing, How Great Thou Art. And I heard stories about God from the songs. Those were the stories I heard. For those three years, I heard who God really was, and it became anchored in my heart. In fact, I love that song so much, How Great Thou Art, that I had it in my wedding because of that memory of that's when I began to learn God is big, God's a creator. God sent his son. Tell the stories to each other. Look what Psalm 78, 4 says. I will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power, and the wonders he has done, and he is our hero. Okay, the story of the Red Sea parting, I read there, it's a story beyond our imagination. Would that not have been so great? To have been there, uh, you can watch the, what's the Ten Commandments and get a little feel for it. What do you come away with, though, when you just heard those verses there? Who is in control of the skies, the waters, the clouds, the thunder, the lightning, the winds, everything that was surrounding the parting of the Red Sea? Who was in control of this incredible trial as the Jews found themselves facing when everything looked hopeless, standing on the shore of this raging waters with their enemy, the Egyptians, coming on horses and chariots behind them? Who is in control of those kind of trials that come our way when everything looks hopeless? When our trials are like a mighty and mad sea right before us, we have to remember it's all in the hands of God, just like all those elements were when they parted the Red Sea. It's all in the hands of God. All the elements of our suffering are submissive to the perfect plans of God in our life. Nothing is bigger than God. The waters of the Red Sea, it tells us in those verses, they saw God and they trembled. To do his will. The deep trembled. It was his thunder. His lightning. That did his will. Our heartaches. 
are real in this fallen world, in this dark world. And he gives us emotions to feel them. It is not wrong to grieve. It is not wrong to be sad. But we have to live in the light of knowing it does not have to overcome me. It is submissive to the perfect plans of a mighty God. Uh, Shelly mentioned briefly last week about her son Aaron, her grandson, Aaron, the son of Sarah and Jimmy, who uh, was two and in a very horrible state a few weeks ago with his heart as a two-year-old. What she doesn't tell you is um, her incredible faith during that time. And I have to tell you this, there was tons of crying. Everybody was crying. You didn't go into that room without crying. But there was tons of chasing after God. There was tons of faith that this wasn't bigger than God. And they believed and trusted in what work he would do. God knows that we have an Egyptian army behind us. These are all those frightening realities of life that are always chasing us and pursuing us. He knows we have a Red Sea in front of us. These are the dangerous things that we face that confront us. He knows that they are like thunder and lightning and a giant whirlwind in our soul. But he is there in the storm just like he was for Israel. Look at verse 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You yet led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. God guided Israel like a giant pillar of fire and like a giant cloud, a pillar of cloud, across the Red Sea and beyond, and we can envision from these verses God controlling this wall of the Red Sea, controlling the winds and the rain, and it's amazing. We just see this so powerful, and yet Asaph tells us in the last verse, he sees God like a shepherd. He says, he led us like a flock. You're saying to me that this all-powerful God is also all gentleness? Yes. That's who he is. His way was through the sea and the great waters. It was not above it. It was not around it. It went through it. Israel followed him as these waters raged alongside them like sheep following their gentle, faithful shepherd. God has made a path for us to endure the storms in our life, and he is our shepherd. And when they reached the other side of the sea, they were in bondage to Egypt no more. They were free now to pursue God in new ways. And that's what happened when we follow God's lead in our trials. We get to pursue God in ways we wouldn't have pursued him if we didn't find ourselves suffering. Knowing God is working out his will within our trials frees us to know him in new ways. Instead of being defeated by our trials, we talk to God more. 
We seek God more. We pray to God more. We listen to God more. We know he has a plan. We get better spiritually because we are chasing him through the storm. And I love this verse. His footprints were unseen. Isn't that so cool? We can't visibly see the footprints of God. But God's involvement in our suffering is visible when we have eyes of faith. We will see the footprints if we are exercising faith in God. We will see he delivered us through the waters. Look at Isaiah 43. This is what the Lord says. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you pass through the rivers, they will not sweep over you. For I am the Lord your God, since you are precious and honored in my sight, and because I love you. God has a plan in our suffering. Let's follow God's lead. Let me pray. Oh, Father, we just praise you because we can think of all the times you've delivered us. In the midst of all our trials, our suffering, our sadness. And just remind us who you are. So we don't run away from you, but we run to you. And we come out better. We just ask that you remind us of this. That you would get all the glory and the praise. Thank you for not only being powerful, but for being loving. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.